Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Ferguson, Chicago. It's kind of hard to believe that we are approaching the end of the year. I'm actually recording this intro on November 16th, and uh, crazy to think about. Uh, we're nearly at the end of it. Wanted to give you guys an update on some upcoming episodes. Uh, we are doing uh, an episode soon on the brand relaunch for Velveeta Cheese. Uh, which just launched a new campaign, I think a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to be talking to uh, Johannes Leonardo in New York about that campaign. We're also, um, I think I'm recording this early next week, which I'm excited about. It's a conversation with the author, Douglas Holt. He uh, wrote uh, one of my favorite books in the world of strategy and marketing, which is uh, cultural strategy. And so he's an advocate for what he calls cultural innovation strategy. And I'm super excited to get a chance to talk to him. He's uh, a former Harvard uh, professor, former Oxford professor, and he has uh, he currently owns his own consulting group based out of the UK. So we're going to be talking next week, and I'm super excited to hear about not only the way he thinks about many things, but also maybe get an inside look into his new book, which comes out next year. So that's uh, that's Douglas Holt. We're also doing a campaign, or an episode, should I say, on 72 and Sunny's Bumble campaign, Bumble being the dating site. And I think this campaign gives us a whole different perspective on how to think about dating. I'm excited about that one coming up. We're also in December. Uh, we've invited Mark Ritson to come on the show. And he has agreed, which is super exciting. And he is going to be coming on in December to do a recap of his highlights of 2021 in the world of marketing. I'm not sure if he does highlights and lowlights, but it'll be one or the other or or both. Who knows? Uh, But I'm super excited about that. And I expect that episode will be out before the end of the year. I suppose it kind of has to be. Today, we recorded an episode on Cadbury's Milk Chocolate. Uh, which many of you of you may know, it just won the APG Grand Prix for creative strategy uh, in the UK, uh, APG out of the UK. Terrific campaign. We, we go on a journey over the last three years from roughly 2018 to 2021. There were kind of two or three phases of the campaign. But during the conversation, we also revisit the famous gorilla spot for Cadbury's milk chocolate back in 2007. And we talk about what happened between 2007 and 2018 that led to the need to sort of refresh the brand or or relaunch the brand. And it's just terrific work. And uh, I'm super excited to share that once it comes out. Anyway, today we talk with John Kenny. John Kenny is SVP Managing Director and Head of Strategic Planning at InTouch Group. And InTouch Group works globally in the pharma category. And John um, is based here in Chicago. He's been on the show before. You guys may remember him connected with Michelob Ultra. We touch on that a little bit in the episode. But I invited John on because I've kind of recently become sort of obsessed with uh, with pharma marketing. I think a lot of it was uh, was uh, triggered by kind of two things. One, there's so much of it, and two, was Dope Sick, which is the recent series on Hulu that talks about the opioid crisis and OxyContin, and that began to trigger a lot of thoughts in my mind about how the industry is structured. And so I was excited when John agreed to come on and talk about pharma in general. There seems to be a ton of opportunity in it for strategists. There's a great appetite for strategists because I think the way John frames it, and you'll hear about this in the episode, he, he thinks about it in terms of that pharma should be sort of representing patients more like Nike treats athletes rather than treating them as victims. And his general sense is that um, the category uh, has been in a certain 
mode of communication over the years. And it's part of his goal is to try and evolve that. And so it's an interesting way to think about it. He also brings up a great point. I think when we hear about pharma and we hear about science, we tend to think about science as being very, very right-brained, very rational, very evidence-based, which of course it is. But he also makes a great point, which is that he, from his perspective, he thinks of, of scientists as being just as crazy as artists, being just as creative, being just as innovative in developing ideas and innovations that change the world, literally. And it is, it's important to keep that in mind and that that is, in fact, a reality. So you've got to be able, able to you know, feed that creative mind as well as that scientific mind. And that's what kind of makes planning in that space really interesting for strategists. So this is uh, John Kenny from InTouch, and we talk about pharma. Enjoy. So welcome to John Kenny. John uh, has been on the show before. We talked um, Michelob Ultra. It's a great episode, one of my favorites. And the whole concept of the social athlete came out of that uh, uh, whole campaign, which is, is great. I encourage people to listen. John, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back, Fergus. And you know, we're we're both as as some may know, we're both from Dublin, Ireland. You have the more obvious accent, the charming John Kenny accent. I'm I'm like this uh, uh, thing that bobs in the middle of the Atlantic. I'm neither Irish nor American, so nothing distinctive about my voice. We're both working at Fergus. <laughs> both working. I'm, I try to discover it after a couple yeah. of glasses of wine, but yours is ever present. And we're, we're here today to talk about pharma as a category. You know, you moved, you were at FCB, you moved to uh, InTouch uh, about a year ago, roughly. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the pharma category from a number of different perspectives. And I know for you, um, and from an InTouch perspective, this isn't a conversation about InTouch, just so everybody knows, but it touches on InTouch because your sense is that there's big opportunities for people in our world of strategy within the pharma category. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't uh, disagree with that. I mean, when you look at the body of work, you can see how it's evolving, uh, but it probably isn't evolving fast enough. So you see a lot of opportunity in pharma, right? Yeah. I mean, pharma has something that I always worked on in the last 10 years. Uh, but, you know, interesting, you know, last time we were on, we talked about Michelob Ultra. You know, the key switch with Michelob Ultra was understanding how health and wellness had moved to the center of our culture from the periphery. And once you kind of unlock that for the brand with the social athlete insight, that brand really took off. And so I'd been kind of aware of just, just the growing influence of health and wellness. And if you think about the pharma space in particular, that's really exploded. I think at this point, it is the fifth biggest category of advertising. It's bigger than beer. It's bigger than automobiles. You're more likely to see a pharma ad than a Jeep ad or a Bud Light ad. Uh, and so there's just been a huge amount uh, of investment in this space, primarily driven by the biotech revolution. So people may have heard about gene therapy, diagnostic genetic testing, precision oncology. All of that to say is in the last 10 years, it has never been a better time to get a diagnosis of cancer. It has never been a better time to get a diagnosis uh, of an autoimmune disease. Those are terrible pieces of news to get, but the treatments that have evolved over the last 10 years and are coming down the line in the next 10 to 20 are truly revolutionary. Uh, and as a consequence, 
you've had almost like a doubling, tripling of FDA approvals of new molecules. Um, and consequently, you've had a huge increase in competition. The market is a lot more crowded. And so as a consequence, uh, manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies, they need to raise awareness of these treatments because the, the big issue is revolutionary breakthroughs aren't enough. It takes around seven years still for new treatments to trickle their way through the system. Uh, and so one of the big reasons why you're seeing so much farm uh, advertising is A, there's a ton of new products, a ton of new innovation, and B, it is really hard to get people both on the healthcare professional side and the patient side to understand some of these new treatments uh, and to raise awareness of them. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's easy to be um, to be cynical when we look at farmer marketing. And, I, and, you know, and part of me, since I'm Irish, part of me is always cynical. So, but I'm, I'm, I am, I have been curious about the amount of advertising that's out there because it just seems to, it seems to me as strange that the marketing is being targeted towards the consumer. Uh, the, the general public, when I've typically thought of that market as being one where it was targeted more towards sort of that, let's call it the B2B sort of a angle, where it was targeted towards physicians. What changed? Why yeah. is there so much of it? I mean, in part, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, there's definitely an increase in pharmaceutical advertising around disease awareness. And then in the US, uh, around particular brands. Uh, I think what's happened is First and foremost, the uh, you know, starting probably in the 70s, you had the patient revolution where the blind faith we used to have in the medical establishment uh, got uh, started to be undermined, where patients wanted to be informed. Uh, that was only turbocharged by uh, the HIV crisis, by uh, the women's movement really advocating in terms of women's pain, women's uh, uh, treatments being not being taken seriously enough. And so there's, and then I think finally, you know, we're, we're dealing with a far more educated uh, population that has uh, Google uh, as their side advisor. And so you're increasingly dealing with a medical establishment that doesn't have the blind faith it had uh, 10, 20 years ago. In many ways, that's a good thing. It can also cause problems as we've seen. Uh, but you're also dealing with a far more educated, far more informed uh, audience than you were dealing with. And people want to be involved in their healthcare decisions. So that's, I think, a global phenomenon. It's especially relevant in the U.S., which is obviously a more market-orientated society. Free speech, especially for corporations, are far more protected. So as a consequence, the U.S. is probably leading the way, uh, but across the world, we're seeing a lot more public discussion about health and wellness. Uh, and again, it goes back to health and wellness becoming, and how I want to live a healthy life, becoming kind of really central to our culture, whereas before it was it was pretty peripheral. Is it the expectation and is part of the KPIs that you want a consumer, a patient, um, to go to the doctor and ask specifically for this specific drug is that the primary goal of mass marketing to uh, um, for for the brands or is it something different i think in this 
question. It, it's really this is it's broadly similar to the rest of marketing, where our goal in advertising is less about persuading. Hey, this is the killer drug. Go go demand your doctor get it, and more make you aware of it. Uh, at 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 worst, when your doctor mentions this treatment to it, you're familiar with it. You've heard about it before. That's a social endorsement. If you're searching online, you'll have come across it before, so you're going to be more receptive to it. Uh, at the very at the maximal level, you may bring it up to your doctor. Have you heard about this? What about this treatment? So advertising in general is a weak force. It's about nudging, but it is a really powerful force. And those small nudges can really help get newer treatments uh, as part of the conversation between a doctor uh, and the patient. I think the other thing that's happening, though, is there's more and more people involved in that conversation. Uh, we're increasingly talking to patient advocacy groups. We're going to be talking to influencers online. We're talking to insurance companies, employers, hospital systems, key opinion leaders, uh, and so the the universe of folks that are involved in treatment conversations is only expanding. But our goal, I think, when we're successful, is to ensure that these people are aware of these diseases, uh, aware of treatments for for these diseases, uh, and that we're removing the stigma about talking about your disease or talking about the treatment. But but couldn't that be achieved? By targeting just the doctor, there the the uh, the doctor that we assume that the patient trusts. You would think it would, but what's shocking is the there's a lot of inertia uh, in the medical system, uh, and the uh, you know if you think about your 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 primary care physician, just how overwhelmed they are. Uh, it, it's it's shocking how you know particularly the rare disease space how long it takes to get treatment. We're, we're talking about folks who take you know, 10, 15 years uh, to get treatment because nobody's thinking about some of these uh, diseases. Uh, and so it's, it's a, it, it, if we could do it just by communicating with healthcare professionals, we would be. But what's interesting is, especially now, uh, patients can frequently know more about their disease, especially when it's a rare disease, uh, than the healthcare professionals they're talking about because they're massively invested in researching it online. So the the informational equilibrium has definitely changed over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I agree with that because I've recently gone through um, gone through the system for um, with a family member dealing with this with a condition that uh, needed treatment, right? So it started off with a conversation about one type of medicine. And then it, it pr progressed to another type of medicine. And then what became pretty clear is, is, was, is the tension between the doctor and the insurance company. They want you to take this laddering approach up from the most basic entry-level uh, solution to the next level, to the next level. You can't skip levels. So if you've got a new drug, uh, without the awareness of that amongst the patient, there is that reality that you don't even get exposed to that as a possibility, not because the doctor doesn't want to suggest it, but many times because the insurance company won't pay for it. Yeah. And, and the reason why you know the insurance company is paying for it is because, hey, in general, on average, this is the most effective treatment. And from a patient perspective, you're like, yeah, but what about me? I'm not average. I'm me. 
my body is now an ongoing uh, experiment. Uh, if you've got a very common condition, if you've got something, let's say like breast cancer, uh, the treatment protocols are really clear, really straightforward. There's a lot of certainty. If you've got a autoimmune disease, uh, what you or if you've got a chronic pain uh, disease, what you have is far from uncertain. And there's been a lot of really interesting writing. Ross Dutate in the New York Times has been talking about his journey through chronic illness yeah. where they're invisible, it's uncertain, and patients do really need to start taking control. Uh, this is the so Lyme they, disease case, right? This yeah, is, the Lyme disease yeah. thing. It's in today's New York Times, by the way, for anybody. Super listening. interesting. I advise everyone to read it. But it's uh, what, what's striking is uh, when patients are informed and actively involved in their treatment, treatment outcomes are better. Uh, and I think doctors appreciate that too as well. I mean, when you look at a lot of the OTC brands, over-the-counter brands, um, it seems that, the, and I may be wrong in this, but it seems like the majority of the work that I see is in that space of OTC versus prescription uh, drugs. And is that, is that facing a completely different market with private label and generics and, and competition? Is, is part of that getting around and navigating around uh, the generics that are in the marketplace? No, primarily most of the most of the advertising that you're seeing around, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical products, our treatments are really in the branded space before they have uh, generic uh, or OTC competition. Mm. Um, the The challenge is, and I think one of the things that I got excited about uh, in terms of the opportunity to specialize in this area is I don't think the industry has really wrapped its head around how the culture uh, of health and wellness has changed over the last 10 or 20 years. And so I think one of the reasons why I think a lot of us, when we see a lot of the work that we see on television and online, it just looks off still. Uh, it's yeah. not work uh, that really feels like it connects. And in fact, you know, we did a, we did a, a piece of research earlier this year where we found even talking to the chronically ill, only one third uh, of that population believe pharmaceutical advertisements actually understand uh, what it's like to have a chronic illness or actually can communicate well the experience of chronic illness. So I think there is a huge issue, you can call it an opportunity, uh, around how the pharmaceutical industry talks about illness, uh, how it talks about chronic illness. Uh, and I think there's a big opportunity in terms of updating that and talking about health and wellness in a more modern way. Yeah. And I think, I think that I, I think I wanted to sort of look at this conversation in a couple of different parts. So, so one is the, the industry of pharma. One is sort of the way that it's acting now in terms of its marketing. And then third is sort of the opportunity in, uh, in, in pharma for strategists. So back to the first part, which is pharma as a category, you know, in popular, in, in popular entertainment where we're seeing and in, and in news, it's hard to have a conversation about pharma without bringing up what's gone on with opioids. And I think in that situation, bad behavior has become more well-recognized. There's a stronger awareness now about how these and how we think the industry might be working behind the curtain. And for those who have watched uh, Dope Sick on Hulu, uh, although it's based on the Sackler family uh, story, 
It is rather shocking to hear about some of what we think are the realities and the way drugs go to market and the way drugs are approved by the FDA, the revolving door between people who work for the FDA and approving drugs, and then next year they're working for pharma. Uh, All of that sort of is something that I think as marketers in that space, you've got to be able to deal with. Do you feel that that story, which has been ongoing for 10 plus years, 20 years maybe, um, do you think that and coming to a head now and has still not been resolved? Oh, do you I think, think that is a big issue that pharma has to overcome now. That trust absolutely, issue. Absolutely. Uh, if you think about, I mean, pharma is in an interesting space where the industry uh, that played a critical role in ending a pandemic. Yes. And then we're also the industry that is in, in public view seen as causing a pandemic. And that's the opioid uh, epidemic. Um, and so there really is this really bifurcated perspective on pharma where it's amazing in terms of some of the pipeline of treatments that are coming down, but where you have a situation where you, this is 20% of the US economy, there's huge amounts of money involved, incentives can get really twisted. And you start reading, you know, McKinsey reports on how we can turbocharge. Uh, opioid sales, you realize we're in a very different category. Uh, and you can, whatever about other categories that folks have worked in over the years, fast food, alcohol, I've done a ton in both. Uh, pharma is different. Uh, some of these treatments that we sell have black box warnings. And so it is really important that we have to have almost like a fiduciary obligation to think about the, the welfare of the folks who we're talking to. Uh, I think the opioid industry is going to haunt the pharma industry for many years. It's obviously already led to several bankruptcies. I think reputations have been ruined. Where I think it's going to really accelerate the shift is away from sales being the primary way that pharma is compensated, because it used to be they were just basically compensated in terms of how many pills they sold. Uh, Increasingly, you're seeing the insurers governments stepping in where we're going to compensate you based on patient outcomes. Uh, And so there's a shift away from this sales model, which is really not appropriate in the pharma space towards patient outcomes, where uh, is your drug actually leading people to having a a higher quality of life, a a higher survival outcome? These are the metrics that I think increasingly the pharmaceutical industry is going to be compensated on. And I think that's a good thing. Let's talk about the transition from for you. You were you were a heading strategy at FCB Chicago. We talked about Michelob, and then there's other brands. Then you go, you go to InTouch. Tell us about that transition. What's familiar, and you know what's challenging for yeah. a strategist going from one environment to another. Yeah, I think ultimately the similarities is good strategy is always good strategy. How do I make my brand more culturally relevant so that people want to engage in it? Uh, how do I make the experience easier? Like if you've worked in telco, if you've worked in financial services, uh, simplifying just the process is a huge issue. And then how do you help your brands kind of stand out and be distinctive? Those three jobs uh, were, my, were the 80% of what I did uh, at FCB. They're 80% of what I do at InTouch. I think there's three Really big differences. Uh, if you, especially you think about it, you know, let's talk about Michelob Ultra. No one really cares. It's the 21st century. Light beer is all basically the same. If I give you a Miller Light, you'll be fine. Most CPG 
is really tiny choices where you'd almost be bothered if you have to think about them. Then you move to finance, buying a car, buying medical insurance. They become complicated choices, but really you want to simplify. Uh, Then you go into the pharma space, uh, the health and wellness space. And these are really profound choices. What happens to you if you're a 25-year-old young woman who's diagnosed with MS, a young guy who's diagnosed with Crohn's disease? Uh, I I was talking last week to a 50-year-old guy who is terminally ill with cancer. How will I live the rest of my life? These are the most emotional uh, decisions because they're so big. Um, And you're in a category that is high. The involvement is incredibly high. Think about CPG. You're really not involved at all. It's incredibly complex. It's incredibly innovative. You're in a category that nobody wants to be in. Nobody wants to be in the MS category. Nobody wants to be in the Crohn's category. No one wants to be in the terminally ill cancer category. And so as a consequence, you're dealing with highly emotional issues in terms of what does it mean to be a human being? How do I live a good life? Uh, and how do I escape so much of the stigma associated with illness? So that's probably the number one difference. From a process perspective, I think the second big difference from a strategy perspective is that you're working with medical strategists. Uh, these are PhDs. MDs, folks who've taken like the Hippocratic Oath, and they're there to help you understand the science because you're dealing with cutting edge science. And they bring a seriousness uh, to every discussion because they're first and foremost, they see themselves as healthcare providers and only secondarily as marketers. And so that's a really interesting dialogue between the medical strategy team uh, and the uh, the strategic planning team. But it's really, it's a really interesting one. You find yourself just learning more about the body and chemistry and biology than you ever knew imaginable. So that's got to be, that's got to add a different level of complexity and a different skill set, a different level of intellect, a different level of curiosity that, that, that uh, when you're hiring somebody, you've got to find because it's not, it's not all about pop culture and trends. No, you got to be willing to go deep, not broad. So what are the characteristics you think are, best for a strategist in pharma? I think uh, first and foremost, it is about that kind of interest in science and interest in in making the complex really simple. I mean, a lot of, if you think about standard CPG planning, it's about making the simple uh, and obvious seem really kind of interesting. We're taking really interesting, really compelling science and trying to simplify it. So you do have to have a passion for science. Um, I think the third thing Uh, though that actually makes it really different is, and this is something I honestly didn't expect. I'd always worked in pharma along with other categories uh, prior to InTouch. When you're solely working on pharma, you realize just how emotionally compelling uh, the work is. Like you're dealing with, you know, parents of kids with rare diseases. You're talking with people who are struggling with early stage diagnosis of MS you're really dealing with some heartbreaking stories. And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, like there are times that many of us at the end of a patient interview or talking to doctors about what folks are going through, you're in tears. It's, it's, you, you get to see people at the lowest moment of their lives uh, when you're at the doctor's office getting the worst news you've ever gotten. 
Uh, and overwhelmingly, you see people never give up. But I've got to think, though, when you when you look at pharma as a category and all the brands in the portfolios, you're not always dealing with fatal conditions. And I, I got to think that just so we don't to- totally turn people off the category. Totally. There's also sort of, there's no, also most, just o- OTC brands. There's chronic actually, conditions. It, most of the pharmaceutical agencies, we deal with hardcore life sciences. So you're dealing primarily with oncology. So there's a lot of cancers. You're dealing with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's, IBD, psoriasis. So these are really serious illnesses that uh, can really have a debilitating impact on your life. Uh, you're also dealing with a lot of mental illness, a lot of rare disease. Uh, at the lightest end, you're probably dealing with uh, um, some of the more advanced um, uh, skin care conditions. So Botox is an FDA-approved treatment. You need to go to a, a healthcare pro- provider to get uh, these kinds of treatments. So we do also get involved in that in the lighter end, uh, but we're dealing with overwhelmingly pretty serious stuff. And, and again, it can sound dark, but what's, what is amazing is, is this doesn't crush people. Uh, and you see people, you see people being incredibly amazing. And, and I think actually one of my big issues with the industry is we have a tendency to treat these folks with, with kid gloves, whereas in fact, they're tougher than any of us. Uh, and we should be treating them the way Nike treats athletes. Uh, these people are amazing. We can learn from them. Uh, and our, our companies and our clients are here to help, but it's them uh, that are really inspiring. Uh, and so that's where I kind of think the real shift needs to come in terms of how the industry talks about these things. So you help me understand then for, for InTouch, why is InTouch not involved in OTC type brands? And is it, why just life sciences? Life sciences has a certain amount of uh, complexity in it that OTC doesn't. Uh, and OTC brands just really aren't growing as quickly as uh, as, uh, uh, DT, uh, as the DTC prescribed brands. And so there's really, from a, even from a business perspective, there's not a lot of reason to get out of pharma because it's growing. Actually, honestly, the biggest challenge managing a pharma planning team versus a, a general marketing planning team is managing the growth. Uh, the, this industry, you know, I think around the average pharmaceutical marketing agency last year in the U.S., the average grew 20%. Uh, and so recruiting and onboarding planners, that's been the biggest challenge. So we haven't had a lot of reason to go outside of pharma. Uh, the good news is actually retention isn't a challenge. Once people kind of get into this field uh, and get a, a taste for it, uh, they rarely leave. So um, I think one of the things that we've all seen in marketing over the last uh, 10, 15 years is sort of more honest conversations that have begun to happen in marketing. And it's sort of a willingness for certain brands to ad- you know, sort of address stigmas, to confront taboos, and we, I mean, maybe one of the early ones was Dove campaign for real beauty. More recently, maybe Labras with Blood Normal, Viva La Volva. There's, 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 um, it is for for years, for decades. There's been an unwillingness to talk about things that people talk about one to one, but it's just not happening at in in marketing on a mass level. And I'm curious. I I think for me, I've sort of felt there's a, that there's been an evolution in some of the pharma work because it's become 
ads that are less about being set in a clinical environment. And it's, I think there's now attempts to move out into the real consumer's world, the patient world. Um, but yeah. what are, what are some of the conventions that for a guy like you who appreciates creativity and originality, I mean, I got to think you're, you're trying to push the ball uphill, but what are some of the things, what are some of the conventions you're trying to yeah. break? Yeah. So here's the standard pharma ad. Uh, and it goes back to a place where illness is associated with shame and stigma. Uh, your embarrassing condition is, is letting other people down. Uh, take our drug uh, and you'll be, uh, and no one will know your dirty secret ever again. Um, and if you look at a lot of pharmaceutical advertising, even today, still follows that we're going to make you look, quote unquote, normal. Uh, no one will know it. You will stop letting people down. Uh, and I think about the way pharmaceutical advertising works is in many ways, it's using the same tropes uh, that we used to talk about in terms of uh, periods 10, 15 years ago. Remember, periods 10, 15 years ago was a lot of women running through fields in white dresses doing somersaults. No one's going to know. You're going to live a normal life. A lot of period shame. I think the women's health in particular has probably led the way. Uh, if you think about two-point dove, body form, uh, you by Kotex, uh, they've really broken the kind of the stigma around that. But I think overall, what's happened to pharma, what's happened to health and wellness is chronic illnesses used to be chronically isolating. If you had Crohn's, your ability to kind of go out, meet with friends is severely compromised. It's certainly unpredictable. Uh, and as a consequence, you'd end up being leading a very isolated life and a very shameful life. Now with social over the last 10 years, if you have MS, uh, if you have uh, cancer, uh, if you have any of these kind of chronic conditions, there is a community out there. Uh, and what's interesting is to see how particularly kind of influencers within the community, how they're engaging uh, their audiences. Uh, and probably like the, you know, the, the real sea change was in the last year when in the course of 12 months, we had Meghan Merkel, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, young women talking about their mental illness issue uh, from a source of, I have mental health issues. I need you to respect that. Uh, I'm not going to put your needs ahead of mine. Uh, and that you think about earlier generations, they were brought up to believe I need to hide this. I need to do the press conference. I need to perform. Um, I can't talk about my mental illness. Now we're living in a world where I think we're seeing far more celebration, far more acceptance of real transparency and authenticity. And I think the brands that are really breaking through, you mentioned Body Form, you buy Kotex, Dove, all these brands, they've done an amazing job by being champions uh, of the audiences they serve. And so I think the opportunity within, within pharma is to bring that modern code uh, of health and wellness where you are not a sick person. You are a person who has a sick body and you're doing the best that you can. And I think that shift is a really fundamental one. Uh, and I, and, I'm, and what's, what's encouraging is that it, it's very, it's actually a relatively easy sell. Once you kind of lay out to a client, you know, the cliches and the category. And once you lay out and remind them how much money they're spending on media and how little correct brand attribution you're getting, 
and then show, hey, look, here's this here's this 25 year old uh, in our bedroom who's got two million followers on on TikTok talking about MS. What is she doing to drive that organic uh, audience? How can we kind of learn from what they're doing? It's actually not a hard sell. Uh, I think given how expensive it is to launch a drug, those conventions that were really developed 10 years ago when we were in the world of blockbuster and there wasn't a lot of blockbuster drugs and there wasn't a huge amount of competition, those conventions don't work anymore when you're in a really crowded environment. And so I, I am hopeful and I definitely see uh, real improvement in the quality of the advertising, not just from a professional perspective, but Again, I go back to the point, we're the fifth biggest category uh, uh, of advertising uh, in the U.S. today. We don't just talk to our audience. We represent what chronic illness looks like uh, to the mass audience. And I think we can do a better job of explaining what it means to have Crohn's, to have an autoimmune disease, to have cancer uh, in our marketing. And so that's something that I think is, is really exciting. So what do you, what do you admire that's out there, John? I mean, whether it's from InTouch or someone else, yeah. what do you think is out there that's something that is a great example of what you would like to see uh, farmer marketing become? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites, uh, and, you know, one of the things that's also kind of unique about farm is you end up partnering with these companies probably two, three years out in terms of from when their drug launches. So that's uh, so, crazy, right? That, that's, I mean, come on. What totally. an onboarding and on-ramp that is. Three years yeah. out. I mean, talk about, we we live in a category that shit changes in three weeks. Totally. We feel in pop culture. I worked in how do you do bowl. it three years out? Yeah, I worked in toilet, toilet paper for a couple of years. And the last meaningful innovation was when Scott invented the roll back in uh, 1911. <laughs> I think maybe two to three ply was probably exciting. Uh, I think you probably remember uh, Irish toilet paper in the 70s. So there's, yeah, there's been a while since there's been a real innovation. Whereas this stuff is, because it's so rigorously tested through first, second, and third line trials, uh, you know, two or three years out, we may be launching this. So that's, you know, from a business perspective, you're getting involved really early on. So that's kind of interesting. So as a consequence, I won't talk about work that I've been doing the last 12 months, but I will say the, you know, the the piece of work that actually got me really intrigued uh, in terms of working uh, on chronic conditions was work that I did uh, with Kimberly Clark on their Depend brand. And uh, Depend is obviously uh, for incontinence. Uh, and, you know, back in the day when they launched Depend, uh, June Allison, who was then their their celebrity endorser, uh, she would uh, her big time her tagline for for depend briefs was finally protection mom and I can both live with, and this is a classic trope where yeah. because you've got a chronic illness, literally your life is not worth living. Literally, you've made your caregiver's life not worth living, and this is a terrible terrible way to kind of weaponize guilt against each other uh and you know the 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 mom and and the ad was never seen because it was such a shameful condition to have incontinence flash forward you know 30 40 years later they're still versioning kind of that type of advertising slightly improved uh but uh, what's interesting is is when we come really dug into that they they realized we need to move on 
Um, and the, the one of the things we, we realized as we dug into it was incontinence isn't something that is solely related to folks who are you know, in their 80s and 90s. Incontinence is caused by childbirth. It's caused by menopause. It's caused by aging in general. A huge percentage of Americans suffer from incontinence. It's, 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 a, it's a very common condition. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, I was working with a planner, Katie Lohman, a uh, wonderful, wonderful planner. We were, she was doing interviews uh, and we were talking to these women who suffered from incontinence and who would experience bladder failure at work, on public transportation, at a family gathering. Mm. Uh, and I remember, I still remember, uh, one of the women saying, the world can be a very cruel place. These are incredibly strong women. Uh, and we realized we were dealing with, uh, not victims, but with incredibly strong individuals. And what that led to a campaign called Depend, the only thing stronger than us is you. This is a game changer who dares to be fearless even when her bladder leaks. Our softest, smoothest fabric keeping her comfortable, protected, and undeniably sleek. Depend. The only thing stronger than us is you. Facing leaks takes strength. So here's to the strong who trust in our performance and comfortable, long-lasting protection. Because your strength is supported by ours. Depend. The only thing stronger than us is you. It's having the conversations that destigmatize things. And I think that in society and in all parts of society, I think we're beginning to realize that by talking about things that were considered to be something that weren't talked about in polite company, um, if we have those conversations, it takes the energy, the power, the stigma, the taboo oh. out of them, right? I think it's about building that like emotional connection between a uh, a, a brand and and their audience. If you are pulling out the same cliches, you become wallpaper. Uh, I, I you know we saw people respond to that depend ad, and it was they had an emotional reaction. And we know that when people have an emotional reaction to advertising, they're more likely to remember that advertising. It's more effective advertising. So we don't just have we don't just do it for being, it's the right thing to do. It's also the most effective thing to do. And kind of hand-holding clients through that process uh, is, is really rewarding because like, hey, there's a better way than weaponizing people's insecurities. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it, uh, one of my favorite new campaigns, and I haven't worked on this at all, but I, it's a great example of pharma is Invexi. Uh, and Invexi is dealing with the issue of vaginal dryness, which is menopause-triggered. Uh, very embarrassing, very painful condition, really uh, makes uh, sexual intimacy really painful. And they could have, they had a treatment for it, and they could have maybe just kind of relayed the old Viagra cliches of, you know, uh, couples walking on the beach, taking baths together. But what they did was talk about you're a queen uh, and that women at this point in their lives are a queen they situated it in this Brigadoon 18th century royal court. She's a queen. Uh, she can't, she's just irritated by this vaginal uh, dryness issue. Uh, and she is, it, it basically triumphs over it using Invexi. And it's a hilarious spot. It's incredibly visually distinctive. And even the fair balance, actually, one of the things that's unique about uh, pharmaceutical advertising is you have to list all the negative side effects. 
Um, and that's where that's where the cliches really come in. That's when the walk on the beach is most prevalent. They even were able to play uh, with the fair balance sequence. Indexy presents the Queen's next chapter: menopause. Your vagina is queen. Alas, the symptoms of menopause threaten her kingdom. Foes like vaginal dryness, itching, burning, and especially painful sex. Fret not, for the queen has an ally. Imvexi, the lowest dose estrogen vaginal insert that relieves moderate to severe painful sex due to menopause. In fact, it's the lowest dose vaginal estrogen out there. It easily fits into any queen's busy schedule so that pleasures may be enjoyed anew. Renew her kingdom so that she may rule the ball and the bedroom. I actually think the way Botox is talking about beauty has been doing some really great work. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, and we're seeing it have real world, real time impact in terms of search volume uh, and in terms of sales. So that's why I'm encouraged that the industry has to change. Uh, it's getting too crowded to rely on the cliches that worked 10 years ago. Uh, and the folks that are, are the first movers in this are, are seeing like tremendous success. So what's the, what's the, in simple terms, what's the difference between the way things used to be done and the way you see brands like Invexi and Botox doing it today? In simple terms, what's the difference strategically? I think it's a, uh, probably the, probably the best example is Dove dropped the word normal in its skincare advertising. And it used to be 10, 20 years ago, we all wanted to be normal. We all wanted to look normal. And there's been a huge shift in terms of authenticity and transparency uh, and accepting me for who I am. Uh, and I think what we have to do is start celebrating the fact that you aren't a ill person. You are a person with a chronic condition doing the best that you can. Uh, and celebrating folks uh, versus uh, conspiring with them to hide their terrible secret. That's the fundamental shift that has to happen in pharma. It's going to happen in different ways and different categories. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I would recommend any of your listeners uh, go online to Instagram or TikTok, uh, follow the, the MS community, the Crohn's community uh, on these uh, platforms and it is the most inspiring start to your day to see how these folks are supporting each other. And I think the farm advertising industry can learn a lot from these folks uh, in terms of how we talk about chronic conditions in, in the modern world. You know, it's interesting when you and I talked about doing this episode, we, we, we talked a couple of weeks back. Uh, one of the things I asked you was, um, did you feel, because I, I think I see this in a lot of categories, so I was curious about within pharma, is this an issue of the work being the way the work is because of the creative talent and the strategic talent or the client um, expectations and the client tolerances? And you talked about the fact that you felt that the creative talent uh, has the ability to do the great work. What do you, what do you think is holding it all back from happening on a more, on a more common basis? Yeah, I think, I mean, what, what's been amazing, and I've spent the last year, you know, pitching uh, with some really, really talented creative folks. Uh, I think what's been really rewarding is to bring all the research from Binet and Fields, uh, from the Ehrenberg Bass School of Distinctive Assets, 
uh, from behavioral economics and really help clients. Remember, if you're in a if you're in a pharmaceutical company, you are incredibly right-brained. Your job yes. is developing molecules. You are a science person, true the line. That's what you dedicated your life to. And so, you know, I've, I've often said that, uh, you know, the role of planners is to be the PhD explaining MFAs to MBAs. And I think that's on steroids in the pharmaceutical industry. We have to explain to our clients how creativity works. Uh, and I think that, to me, has been the, the great unlocker, is talking to uh, clients about why characters, about why comedy, about why emotion uh, is is, an, is a, a, a business multiplier, why creativity is a business multiplier. Uh, and so that, for me, is, is driving awareness uh, of the real revolution that's occurred in strategic planning thinking over the last 10 years. Uh, driving that into pharma, that's the big opportunity. So when we talk about people like you and I and many of our listeners who are a combination of client and, and strategists, and I, and I use the term strategist because I think clients are strategic too. So I'm like, that's a label I use for both of, both of these groups. But I'm, I'm curious about, given that you're trying to sort of um, build a, a business case for creativity, and um, you see great opportunity for um, strategists in pharma, yet you want them to have a passion for um, for science. Man, that's a tough order. I mean, how do you how do you balance that out? What yeah. what is it? You know, maybe it's my background. I was a PhD in the social sciences, so I'm pretty right brain myself. Uh, I want. I spent you know seven years too long at the University of Chicago, and one of the things I realized about scientists. Uh, everyone thinks CCOs are crazy. Scientists are nuts. Uh, you think about it. I think at the heart, science and artists are creative thinkers. Science is not about following rules. Science is about seeing the world in a different way, seeing something that no one has seen before. So for me, there's no tension between science and art. Both are ultimately driven uh, by creativity. So tell me about tell me about the perfect strategist for you when you're recruiting for InTouch, yeah. or you're advising on who to recruit. Are you going into CPG? Are you going into certain categories to yeah. try and pull people great out? Question. Um, there's so many different ways of being a great planner. Uh, I, I've, there's my way, but there's there's lots of different ways, uh, and so the, it's a big tent. I do think it helps if you've had experience with relatively complex uh, categories, financial services, auto, uh, travel, entertainment, anything that has like a ongoing customer engagement, it helps. B2B, because there's a lot of complexity in that space, helps. More than anything, you want to know that people can understand how high involvement categories operate uh, and have an interest in really digging into the science. Uh, that, for me, is the, the thing you're kind of looking for. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, we're recruiting broadly now, uh, and some of our most successful uh, planners uh, have come from, uh, have never worked on, on, on farm in their lives, and they're very quickly able to start adding value. And again, you're going to be partnering with medical strategy. You're going to be partnering with CX folks who've got a ton of experience. So it's about playing to your strength as a planner uh, versus trying to be the quintessential pharma planner. I don't think that exists. 
I think it's about building, you know, strategy for me is about building kind of teams of folks who can kind of work together. Uh, you know, the, the, the old guru model uh, of planning, I don't, I just don't think works anymore. Uh, but it's, uh, if you have a, a passion for science, if you love getting into the details uh, of, a, of an audience's life and their experiences, honestly, I can't imagine a planner who wouldn't uh, tick off those boxes. Uh, I think you'll, and, and actually, if you really want to be working in a field uh, where you're having a real impact on people's lives and helping change a system that needs changing, I think farm is a great place to be. So when, when I hear the sort of the idea that you, you have to have a passion for science, I think that might scare people off. Let's, let's sort of dimensionalize that. What do we mean by a passion for science? Is it, is it, a, is it a passion for complexity or is it literally science? I think it's about a passion for taking the complex and making it simple. And, you know, if you think about probably the most complex thing that uh, a planner in pharma marketing worked on, probably oncology, Uh, this, you're, you're talking about uh, genetic innovation. You're talking about, uh, you know, precision science. Uh, This is, this is as complex as it gets. And you're really dealing with kind of breaking science, uh, breaking edge science. Uh, you have to be interested in that. Uh, and I think there, there are folks who aren't, this is not for you. But in, in my experience, most science, most planners are really interested in psychology. They're really interested in how the world operates. Uh, and you don't have to, uh, you know, we've got medical strategists on board who can translate that into somewhat plain English. Your job is then to take that and turn that into real emotional benefits for audiences. And I think that's where I think the the real opportunity is. Yeah, I think we're, I, I think we're the good monk, the good ones among us all are innately curious about pretty much everything. And so, but I, I think what you bring to the table, what you have to bring to the table is your ability to understand the human condition uh, uh, rather than the medical condition is taken care of by somebody else in pharma. You have to have like, you have to have an understanding of it, but that's not your primary responsibility. That's not your primary deliverable it's as as it is in every category you have to bring to it um the ability to come up with simplicity simple answers and under by by understanding the human condition and by understanding the way creativity works i think you're absolutely right the if anyone who's worked with a client that's very engineering led very science led those folks are rightfully driven by the idea that uh our product is the best uh, i think the insight that planners bring to all those kinds of clients is ultimately easy beats better. How do I make this easy to understand? How do I make this easy to remember? How do I make this easy to engage with? How do I make this easy to stay engaged with? And so bringing that whole piece to the equation, that's ultimately what every planner is doing in every category. And in that respect, farm is no different. Yeah, and I think last thing I'd bring up is the fact that I've, if in my career, I've always found that high involvement clients that have a level of complexity, and 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 from from my perspective, it's been the B two B space mm. has been some of the most rewarding work I ever did. It wasn't the sexy stuff, it wasn't the big campaigns, but it was intellectually rewarding. It was creatively rewarding. Uh, so I think for pharma, since there's so much upside opportunity. Uh, I, I would encourage people to check it out if it's if it's even remotely interesting to them. Thanks for yeah. It's it's a I've been I've had a I've had a great year. 
Uh, it's been amazing. I've learned a ton. Um, and it's something I said that I played with for over the last 10 years, but going deep into it has been, uh, you know, certainly at this point in my career, uh, to be this challenged uh, and uh, with a new space with, with, in a growing category uh, has been an amazing experience. All right. It's John Kenny, uh, SVP Managing Director and Head of Strategic Planning at InTouch Group. Uh, uh, he's here in Chicago. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Fergus. Always a pleasure. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.